All right, fellow brethren, I wanted to get back into the Redeeming Money uh, book. Uh, this is the uh, one uh, by Paul David Tripp. And so I wanted to, I think we, we finished off uh, through chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, so this is chapter 4, uh, is entitled Money and the Grace of Surrender. And I'm going to kind of, um, I'm not going to read it all word for word in this chapter, but I'll, I'll kind of, I'll read the, definitely some uh, big segments here in this. Uh, he first talks about, he's, you know, talking about a a, um, a, a person named John that's, you know, did all the so-called successful living, if you will, in terms of, you know, the you know, having the house, the money, the big job, and all that kind of stuff, you know, possessions, and all this kind of stuff, and then so then I'm going to kind of skip part of that to start the chapter and then kind of get into some more of this. So he says, um, So John had completely missed the whole reason God created the treasure or money and placed it in human hands. And being so focused on and committed to his use of money, John had missed the whole point of money. What appeared to be success was not success at all. What seemed right was, in fact, sadly foolish. In spite of all the markers of success, John was not a man to admire, but one to pity. It had been, uh, it had been guiding, or guided by one thing, John, basically himself. So John's mistake was that while he had been careful with his money, he had not been prayerful. A financial life that is lived to the glory of God and meets the requirements of the two great commands, love of God and love of neighbor, does it begin with learning financial principles, the qualities of a good investment, and how to structure a wise and workable budget? An economically and spiritually healthy outlook on money begins with a prayer. Notice that I wrote a prayer. I'm not just talking about a prayer in general, but about a specific model prayer, and that is the prayer that our Lord passed down to us in his most lengthy sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Although John would say he believed in God, it made very little impact on the way he thought about and used his money. Driven by autonomy, you know, meaning my money belongs to me to use as I want, and self-sufficiency, I have everything I need in myself to use my money well. To John, his money was his money. As long as he didn't hurt someone as he acquired it or spent it, John saw his money as uh, his to use as he saw fit. John's faith seemed to have little impact on his use of money. I am more like John than unlike him, and I would imagine you are too. I like to be in control. I like to have my own way. I like my plans to happen without interruption. Money can give you control. Money can purchase uh, an, an easier life. Money can even make people like you more. Money can buy temporary pleasure, comfort, and ease. Could it be that an embarrassing amount of our money is spent on one thing, us? And could it be that by the time we have finished spending our money on ourselves, we have little money left to invest in anything else? Admit with me that living for something or someone other than ourselves does not come naturally. Uh, independent, uh, independent, self-sovereign living is what comes naturally. Making ourselves the most important thing is natural, but it's not the way God designed us to live. So, it's not the pathway to the wholeness of life that we all want. God created us to be dependent. He created us to follow His commands and to submit to His will. We were never designed to put ourselves in the center of our world and make our 
lives all about us. We were never created to live for a little more than our personal comfort, pleasure, happiness, and success. In God's plan for us, we will never find the rest of heart that we all seek until we live according to the purpose and glory of the one who created us. Self-sovereignty is a delusion. Self-glory is a disaster. Independence does not work. Self-rule never goes anywhere good. Living for yourself never delivers what you hope for. With all his success, John could never stop working, never stop investing, and never stop spending. He couldn't stop because he was never able to find what he was looking for. True contentment, true joy, and lasting peace. Okay, and so then he he, uh, he goes into the uh, the Lord's Prayer here. Um, you know, to our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your you know, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, we forget, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us uh, not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, Matthew six five through thirteen. And the, the words of this prayer, he says here, arise from a posture of surrender, which is precisely why it is so helpful when it comes to how we view and use the money that has been entrusted into our care. Financial sanity doesn't begin with hard work and careful budgeting, although both are beneficial. Money sanity begins with surrender, a surrender that rescues us from ourselves and frees us to use what God has provided in the way He intended. So, and then he's going to go into four uh, key categories here, uh, and kind of broken down uh, you know, in the uh, from from the, the Lord's Prayer here. So, and there's sort of like, uh, four different categories, starting with so money sanity in the Lord's Prayer. Number one, your money identity, our Father in heaven. So, we each assign to ourselves some kind of identity from their earliest days. Children begin thinking about this: the identity you assign to yourself determines how you think about life and how you respond to everything that comes your way. When we come to Christ and are adopted into His family, we are blessed not only with His forgiveness and a secure destiny, but with a brand new identity. Between the already and the not yet, we are blessed to be the children of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just define for us who God is and how He responds to us, but it redefines everything about who we are. This new identity carries with it new provisions and new potential. In the in the, so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus argues that because we are now the children of God, we don't have to give way to the normal anxiety that most people feel over the question of whether their needs will be met. Because we now have a wise and loving Heavenly Father who owns everything and is in control of everything, we can rest assured that all of our needs will be met. This means we have been freed from the fear of what that causes us to focus all of our time, energy, and money on making sure all our needs are met. Sadly, this is not the view of money that most of God's children have. They think that the primary purpose for the resources they have been given is personal provision, and they will give God the 10% tax He requires, and if anything is left over, they will give to His work. He hasn't promised to fund your dreams, but he will meet your needs. And then Paul argues in Romans 8, uh, 31 through 32, that the cross is our guarantee of God's faithful provision. If God would go to the extent of controlling nature and the events of human history so, so that his son would come at the right moment to live uh, like we could never live and die the death that we, we should die, 
and rise again, defeating sin and death, would it make any sense for God to then abandon us, failing to meet our needs? You can be sure that since God has willing, uh, was willing to give uh, you His Son, He will give you everything you need now until, and until He takes you to the place He has prepared for you. Now, with this new identity also comes new potential. This is another thing that every human being does. We all are constantly measuring our potential, whether it's a toddler measuring his potential uh, to wobble across the room, teenager measuring his potential to drive in traffic, or the single mom measuring her potential to live, work, and work alone in a big city. Human beings are always defining and measuring their potential. As God's child, your eyes are now open to this truth, and a new set of desires has now been enlivened in your heart. Your heart is now open to something bigger than your little kingdom of wants, needs, and dreams, and your eyes are open to the grand purposes of the kingdom of God, and your resources are free for investing in a greater and more lasting purpose than personal provision. What if the main purpose for your money as a child of the Father is not personal provision, but giving to others and to your Father's work? How would that change the way you think about your finances and use your money? Financial sanity begins with knowing your Father and surrendering to His wise plan. All right, number two, your money purpose. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name uh, are more than a, a prayer for God's name to be known and revered. They are a, a commitment to expend the time, energy, and resources you have to that end. Whether you have thought about it or not, you always save, spend, or invest your money in the pursuit of someone's name. You spend your money to make your name great or to make God's name great. Now, this sounds way too simplistic, but it is true for all of us, no matter how much money we have. So much of what uh, attracts us to buying what we buy is that we are buying not just a thing, but an image. We buy clothes because they are cool or fashionable, so they make us look cool. Uh, We like a certain car for the image attached to it. We want to live in a certain neighborhood because it it has a good image. Uh, We don't just uh, pay to go to a beautiful resort location, but we send selfies back home to let others know we were there. Image drives much more of our spending than most of us ever have ever considered. Sadly, with our wallets, we tend to be glory thieves wanting for ourselves what belongs to God. We want people to respect us and see us as successful. We love to be the center of attention. We want people to know that we've accomplished and, and be impressed. We spend in pursuit of our own glory more often than we think. Although God is our provider and our successes actually come from God's hands, we claim them as our own and steal the glory that belongs to God. All this leads to houses that are bigger than we need, more clothes than we could reasonably wear, more food food than we should ever eat, more luxuries than we should desire, and more debt than anyone could ever carry. And so, um, and he goes on here too, admitting that... Um, you know, he's saying here it's not wrong to invest in a home or family and stuff like that. He says, I'm attempting to get you to examine how much self-glory drives the way that you spend your money. Contrast that with a view of personal finances that is shaped by a heart-ruling, desire-shaping, and decision-forming commitment to do all you can with what you have to make God's name great. When my heart is committed to and satisfied by the glory of God, my heart is content I am thereby freed from the debt-inducing tyranny of hoping that the next big purchase will financially make me content. Spending in pursuit of personal happiness never results in lasting happiness. 
can only result in the acquiring of debt and all the emotional and spiritual stress that goes with it. Embedded in the words, Hallowed Be Your Name, is a call to invest your resources in worship of and for the sake of one infinitely greater than you. If you did that, did that how would it alter the way you view and use your money? These four words infuse your money with a grander purpose than what drives the budgets of most of us. Financial sanity is rooted in surrendering your use of money to the glory of one greater than you. Okay, and number three, your money commitment. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Life between the already and the not yet is one big war of kingdoms. Your parenting is founded by the kingdom you serve. Your joys and disappointments are shaped by the kingdom you have tied your hopes to. Your marriage is guided by the kingdom you serve. Your relationship to your neighbors is kingdom-driven. And your finances are always assessed, spent, and invested in pursuit of a kingdom. When it comes to kingdoms, there are really only two choices. With every choice, decision, or action, you live out of a deep heart allegiance to the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God. And then uh, with everything you do, you are either serving the purposes of God or the desires of self. This conflict of kingdoms is brilliantly laid out for us by Christ in Matthew 6, where Jesus argues that if you live for the right here, right now pleasures of the kingdom of self, you will tend to invest your time, energy, and money in the physical treasure of this present world. You will attempt to satisfy the longings of your heart with earthbound treasures, that is, the people, places, and possessions. The core lie of the kingdom of self is that by satisfying your self-oriented desires, you will find life. And the uh, corollary lie is that physical things will be the delivery system. As sinners, we tend to live for ourselves. We make life all about us. We tend to be obsessed about what we want and why we want it and how we want it when we want it, and who we want to deliver it. We keep telling ourselves that the next thing will be what satisfies us, but it never does. So we go on and buy something else. You know, the car, the house, all the, you know, these things that we, uh, you know, eventually we want something else, uh, you know, we bore, bore with quickly. Sadly, so much of our money is spent looking for life in all the wrong places. This is why Christ's words in the, in the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, are so important to hear, to pray, and to live. Embedded in these words is a plea that God, in grace, would cause our hearts to love his kingdom more than we love our own. And the embedded in that plea is the hope for financial sanity and practical spending wisdom. How would your finances change if you love God's kingdom so much that it is where you wanted to invest your time, energy, and money. How specifically would a God's kingdom focus serve as your defense against frivolous and selfish spending? Are you ready to pray? Your will be done right here, right now, in my finances as it is in heaven? If you would budget with God's kingdom in view, how would your budget change? If you would give with God's kingdom in view, how much more would you be giving? Are the large purchases you make driven by God's kingdom? Are your incidental purchases made in allegiance to what God says is important uh, and of eternal value? Is your car payment too big or your mortgage too heavy? Where is this issue of kingdom allegiance laying out for you an agenda of financial change? True God-honoring financial sanity is only ever found when you surrender the kingdom of self to to the 
greater purposes and the eternal vision of the kingdom of God. All right, the number four, a new way of living with your money. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. Embedded in this prayer is a request for a contented heart, the ability to trust in the Father's promise to provide, a desire for a heart filled with praise and not complaint, a cry for freedom from a heart ruled by an endless quest for more, a cry for rescuing and empowering grace. I'm afraid that although many of us have prayed this prayer, few of us would be content with God's answering it. Most of us crave more and collect much more than just our daily bread. Could you honestly pray, God, if you would just meet my basic needs, not wants, demands, or desires, I would be so grateful. What would God have to give you in order to satisfy you? Could it be that in reality we need much less than we think we need? We have loaded into our need definition many things that are not needs at all. So, uh, more than just the meeting of needs, this is a prayer that cries out for a heart that is so satisfied with the provisions of the Father that the wallet is freed to invest in bigger and better agenda of God's eternal kingdom. The vast majority of our debt and financial stress would be alleviated if we would surrender our desires to our Lord's faithful provision of what we truly need. A contented heart is, is a necessary ingredient in, in any long-term lifestyle of God-honoring financial sanity. And then he goes on here to admit that he, you know, he's you know, talking to himself here on this chapter as well. He says, I, I struggle with these things because I still live with too much allegiance to that little kingdom of one, the kingdom of self. So I end this chapter by going back to the confession and prayer of King David in Psalm 51. I make his word a personal prayer. I hope you will pray it with me. Uh, so Psalm 51, verse 10, uh, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And with this prayer, we can acknowledge that debt is not first a size of the paycheck or adequacy of the budget problem. Debt is the financial result of a heart problem. And for that, we need for, forgiving, rescuing, and transforming grace. Isn't it wonderful that we can rest assured that this grace is what God has promised to bestow on each one of his children. And when God makes a promise, he always delivers. Okay. So that's the end of chapter four there. And stuff. So um, just some kind of, just a few thoughts and stuff. Uh, you know, I've got, you know, I've, you know, I really have enjoyed uh, this book so far and there's still more to come uh, on it. Like I said, this is just chapter four, but, uh, and stuff. Uh, this is something that I feel, you know, that, you know, God's really working in my life to, you know, I've still got a long way to go in terms of, you know, understanding a biblical perspective of finances, you know, and, and I've uh, work and, um, you know, giving back, you know, giving back to God and, um, you know, not so much necessarily in the tithing aspect, but, um, you know, the, you know, in looking at the early Christians, you know, that's really been a, a really eye opener for me and studying them and what they believed and how they lived, it's, uh, man, it's, it's really, and when you see early Christians, like, you know, uh, Cyprian's been one of my favorites, and uh, he was one that, uh, you know, he was actually born into a, like a pretty wealthy family, and uh, he, uh, you know, he, he ended up literally, like, selling his possessions and, 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 and became an elder of the church, 
in uh, Carthage, and uh, and yeah, and he, and he ultimately died for his faith, and he followed. He literally followed Christ. I mean, this is, you know, um, you know, that's really the ultimate. You know, that we should look at that as uh, that's truly honoring Christ to live like Christ, to die like Christ. Those things is really the true faith. Is 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 that, and so, uh, and when we're constantly bombarded with a diluted you know, Christianity, or I'd even call it churchanity, as I've mentioned in another series before about the, the true church, but the, um, you know, everyone's so focused on self, everyone's so focused on their little cliques, or join my church, that, you know, sadly, um, you know, there's just, there's really, you know, there's not really any salvation in it anymore uh, in terms of these buildings that they call churches. And stuff. So, um, but yeah. So I think, and this is another aspect too. One of the things I learned, you know, in all this is that, you know, this is why I'm even trying to. I'm getting a small get together of a local, uh, trying to establish a local fellowship and Bible study group in my local area. And I've got me and one other guy so far that uh, the Lord's blessed to locate. Uh, and we've had our first meeting uh, over the weekend. And so, um, you know, it's still in the early infant stages of it, but, you know, uh, you know we're uh, on the same page in terms of a lot of the biblical principles, and uh, in particular, we realize the churches are, are vastly corrupt and worldly uh, and stuff, and we definitely agreed, have agreed on, you know, agree on that. And so, um, you know, and that's, that's a major thing. I think, I think more and more people are coming out of these churches today. Uh, and you know, and I understand there's there's an appeal to some people to you know want to uh, you know kind of like save the churches so to speak or or think there's salvation in them. Um, you know, you know, I'm I'm not, I'm not gonna say they're they're 100 percent terrible. Um, you might find a point zero zero one uh, out there that might be a, a pretty good church, but the problem is is that you know. The early Christians, okay, when they, you know, the, what they called the church was an assembly of believers that met outside the system. Of, I'm talking about this outside the system of this world, outside the system of government, okay, they outside the political system. Uh, they were they were totally separate from that. They didn't pick sides. It's not a matter. That's something I've had to learn too. Is is you know, it's not about a political uh, being part of a political party and, and thinking that there's some kind of salvation or. Uh, in, in that, um, you know, and stuff, because there's, there's not, it's, you know, um, cause sadly, you know, people, you know, they want to, they want to so-called fight for their country, um, for this, you know, for a, you know, a corrupt country. And I'm not talking about any country in particular, but I'm saying the world itself is corrupt and the governments around, you know, tend to be corrupt. And, um, you know, but the problem is we know that governments got ordained, and that to fight against the government is not what we're told in Scripture. I mean, it's not turning the cheek. And so, you know, you know, lo and behold, uh, people that are, you know, so-called patriotic, you know, then, then we want to become patriotic and martyrs for the, you know, we're not martyrs for the faith at that point. You're martyrs for your country. You're martyrs for patriotism, for politics, uh, which has no power to save you at the end of the day. Um, you know, I think people, that's one thing I've had to learn is that, you're, at the end of the day, that's not going to save. That's not saving faith. That's, you know, you're you're protecting this kingdom in this world. Uh, you're trying to you're trying to salvage and stuff. And so, you know, that's not living for Christ. That's not turning the cheek. That's not you know loving your enemies and praying for your enemies. 
and stuff. So it's the opposite. So now we're in rebellion against God, okay, to do that. You're rebelling against the government God or, that God has ordained, and now you're in rebellion. And we know I've mentioned before, rebellion is as witchcraft, as in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15. So, you know, there's a lot of things, that's kind of a lot of things there. Uh, but in terms of the money aspect of this, I want to get back to the money. The early Christians did establish, like, you know, they would, you know, people would sell possessions. Uh, now, there's, there's some evidence that there was, wasn't, say, a requirement at all times, but the early Christians, you know, there was a, uh, they would often, you know, make a, they had a, a statement they would say when people became Christians that if needs be, they would, you know, sell all their possessions if, if another, um, you know, a brethren or somebody was in need um, that they, you know, so they had to basically say, yes, I, I'm willing to, you know, sell my possessions if I need to, uh, to help out a brother or sister in Christ, you know, that kind of thing. Then they did have to say that. Now, in addition, though, they had a better structure in terms of they actually had a, you know, kind of a common, uh, you know, community uh, that would help f- fulfill the needs of the, of, of the brethren and also the poor, the widows and orphans and all those things. So, uh, but first, honestly, the, the first, you know, um, you know, requirement was to help the brethren, okay, within, within the congregation, within that assembly of believers. So if a believer had a financial need, they were, you know, let's say, let's say they were going to lose their house or become destitute or something, um, you know, things like that, then they would, they would have elders to come to the, the actual local uh, church, okay, not, not a building, but they would go to the elders and let them know of a need, and um, and stuff. So then they can determine either, you know, but perhaps they had somebody else that can house house somebody if they're going to lose their house, or um, if it was better to go ahead and help, you know, you know, uh, if they had to raise the funds, or if they already had it uh, there within the church, they might have already had some funds uh, and stuff. So you know, then they would determine the best course to take um, to help out this brother within the faith, right? And so you know, the point is, is that I've realized. You know we're lacking in in, in there. You know we don't have that true church. Is what I'm saying. Uh, not yet. I think it's coming. I think you know. I think God is re- reestablishing uh, the Church of Christ, but it's it's gonna it's gonna happen um, kind of in the shadows. Okay, uh, it's gonna happen by local gatherings of people. It's not gonna be the buildings. Matter of fact, I think we'll see more and more churches shutting down. There was recently a big one that shut down close to close out to where I live. Uh, it was a really giant one. I just closed down um, and stuff. And it was typical stuff, typical worldly churches. And so I think we're going to see these a dime a dozen uh, more and more shutting down. But, um, you know, and that's a good thing, um, in my opinion. So, you know, as these things shut down, more people are going to hopefully be looking for local uh, fellowship and Bible study groups. And the key is, I think, on these is to eventually formulate a true uh, you know, as we build relationships and a true unity of the faith and a love of the brethren, uh, which is what the Bible says we should have, uh, but these churches don't have love. And so, but once you actually establish that, and then all of a sudden we can bring in money into the into the storehouses, so to speak, in a biblical sense, to have it there for the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the, of course the brethren uh, as as needs. You know, and we see in the in the in the book of Acts. Where you know they had a common, like you said, a common purse is one way to say it. Um, 
And, but it said no one lacked anything. And I think that's very, very powerful between realizing that we have to have, you know, uh, we need to have more faith to realize that God can provide for all of our needs. Okay, that's something I'm still, you know, praying for more faith in that area and still working that out. And, you know, but that's where the church also has a role to play there as mentor, as, you know, you know, the early church had the apostles and stuff to follow their example, to follow their lead, uh, you know, and stuff. And the early Christians, even after them, that were trained by the apostles and the early disciples. Uh, so they had, you know, real life, really good mentors to follow. That's something else I realized that, you know, that we don't have today, not very many anyway. It's very spare, you know, very scarce to find any good mentors today. You know, there's a cut. There's a few. I, you know, I, you know, Paul Washer's pretty good. Um, you know, I think there's. Uh, you know, I, I still go back to listen to David Wilkerson uh, and stuff, and uh, Leonard Ravenhill. Um, is, 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 he's got some good stuff out there as well. Um, you know, Tim Conway's been an interesting one lately um, that I've been listening to. I, he, he's. I think he's out. He's out of Texas. I think at Houston or something or San Antonio. I think. But so, um, but there's, you know, very few, I mean, I can, you know, I can pretty much probably count them on one hand <laughs> on people that I, you know, trust and listen to consistently and stuff. So, uh, but I think we'll see more as, as things get more challenging, uh, in our daily lives and eventually persecutions return, the true brethren will, you know, will surface more and more. Okay. And what I'm talking about is that the, per, as the persecutions ramp up, those that, you know, there's, there's those that are going to fall away, okay? And whether that's talking financially, it, it could be a variety of things. I mean, the early Christians, oftentimes they would lose, yeah, they would lose their homes and uh, live in, you know, they live in abject poverty because of persecutions and stuff. They'd get kicked out of their houses and all kinds of stuff. Uh, now, uh, and that's part of, the, part of the thing here is, is, you know, what I've had to realize is, is like we've got to separate ourselves from these things more and more, getting out of debt and that kind of thing. But realizing that, you know, are we going to, are we going to renege our faith and deny Christ in order to save your house? I mean, are you, I mean, it's one thing, you know, then ultimately, you know, uh, potentially to save your life, but we know if you deny Christ, he's going to deny us. So, um, you know, but we have to be prepared for any persecution and that comes financially as well, which is what this book really is about in terms of, is, is about finances. That is not necessarily talk of persecution, but I'm just trying to plant that seed to start. It would be good, be wise to start thinking about that. If you were challenged financially, whether it's you know, you know through job losses because of your beliefs, or uh, you can't get a job because of your beliefs, this is all common things throughout history. Um, and then even to the point where, and if you're not picking sides throughout times of war, okay. So let's say let's say America's at war, you know, and I've had a, I mentioned I've had a couple of dreams of uh, you know Asian military control. Uh, I'm assuming it's China. I don't know that for sure, but I assume it was China. Um, and I assume I was on American soil as, as is where I live. But, you know, let's say something like that does happen in the next, you know, I don't know, five years or so or less. And, um, you know, let's say that does happen. Well, then we got to ask ourselves, you know, are we, are we willing to go through that? Are, you know, are we, you know, mentally and spiritually prepared to go through a financial catastrophe uh, and stuff. So, you know, and I don't mean physically prepared in sense of, you know, storing up stuff or whatever um, that can rot and be eaten by moths and all that. I'm talking, I'll be spiritually ready. Uh, are we mentally ready to go through go through that struggle rather than forsake our faith? Because uh, it's, it's easier said than being in the thick of it 
just like the disciples kind of proved out when they all fled whenever Messiah was persecuted. At first they were saying, no, no, we love you, we love you. Uh, we're not going to leave you, especially Peter. And then what happened when, when the true persecution came, uh, they, they all scattered. And so, um, so we have to be very, very careful and stay prayed up and stay in the word. And we should be doing that daily uh, and, um, in order to keep, uh, keep our faith and to continue to grow in the faith. Pray for love. Pray for you know, uh, guidance and wisdom today, discernment. It's always good boldness to speak the word. And that's something else, too, I had to realize is, is that as, as believers, if, we're not, if you're not being persecuted, okay, if you're not being persecuted, then it's because we're not, you know, we're not preaching the word, okay? We're not preaching it enough. You know, or we're just, if we are preaching it at all, we're just preaching it to like-minded people, you know, online or whatever, which is not really um, going to do much other than people are just going to argue probably. Um, but, you know, so if we're not being persecuted today, it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's not because, the, you know, our country is so great or we're founded on some kind of Christian principles and all that stuff. No, it's because we're not preaching the word enough. And I'd seen one recently where a uh, my guy, uh, he's on YouTube, but he, you know, he actually went out on a curbside and, and you know, was preaching and stuff and stuff. And then, but I mean, you, you start seeing people lashing out at him. Like, it's just, wow, it's just really, I mean, it really shows you at the end of the day, you know, it, you know, the, the, the people that, you know, that are getting that actually there is persecution out here. We just don't, we just don't see it on the norm because it's not what it's not what's on TV. It's not it's not the the diluted gospels that we see everywhere uh, in the churches today. Uh, but if you go out preaching the real word, if you go out really preaching sin and repentance of sin, and the kingdom of God is coming, and you will be destroyed if you do not repent now. You go out and teach homosexuality is a sin, all these things. You know, then you know you will see uh, the demons unleashed, so to speak. You will see, you know, the you know the gnashing of teeth. Okay, uh, in this world, uh, we don't see it because we're not preaching enough. Okay, so some things to keep in mind there, and um, we be blessed in Messiah. We'll, I'll talk to you soon.